You're listening to My Cryptid Vacation, Episode 1. The summer after I finished college, I made a decision to take a road trip around the continental United States, visiting as many odd attractions and tourist traps as I could manage. That's the what and where. The when ended up being over the course of three sleep-deprived weeks. The how was in my family's minivan, at a time when gas cost nearly five fifty dollars a gallon in my hometown near Chicago. And the why? Well... I don't know if I can fully explain it. After a bit of research, I discovered that there's a lot of interesting attractions in what some people call flyover country, and it became clear that I'd have to limit the scope of my road trip so that it might actually get done. The result was a road trip of epic proportions, spanning the continent from Santa Cruz, California, to Portland, Maine, Gold Hill, Oregon, to Blue Ridge, Georgia. I vowed to stop at every cryptid museum I could find, document them, and speak with the people who work there about what it's like to do the kind of work they do. I researched open hours, used Google Maps to parse out the routes I'd take, and brought along my trusty voice recorder so that I'd have something to remember the trip by. And so, with some graduation gift money for gas and an air mattress in the back of the car, I set out on my cryptid vacation. I'd never really been that concerned with the paranormal, the esoteric, or the bizarre. I mean, I certainly had a Ripley's Believe It or Not phase, but that might just come with the territory when you're 12. But the purpose of this trip wasn't to photograph Bigfoot, catch a wild jackalope, or arm wrestle the Mothman, as cool as that would be. I'm less interested in whether or not these mythical creatures actually exist, and more interested in, well, why they exist. I pose and then mostly fail to answer, such lofty questions as, how did lumberjack tall tales end up on our auto parts stores, or on our postcards? What kind of person makes it their life's work to bring this unique but often misconstrued folklore to life? And what, if anything, does the way this culture comes to life say about the soul of America? In this series, I invite you to come along with me on my road trip of the American Weird. I'll blend together interviews with museum curators, seasonal workers, and even a town mayor pro tem with my own musings and post-facto research. What you'll get isn't wholly fictional or wholly objective. Like the folklore of this country itself, my account is based in truth, but might not get everything right. It's ultimately a travelogue, not an academic paper. Although I've done my best to fact-check and double-check my work, your results, should you pull a stunt like this, might vary. Before jumping into any travel stuff, we should clear something up right now. What is a cryptid? For the purposes of this project, it's a creature that's been reported or hypothesized to exist without enough proof to sway mainstream science. 
It's a newer term than you might think, with its first use attested in 1983, even if the concept has been around for much, much longer. We can also add that a cryptid has a pseudo-scientific basis for existing. Bigfoot, perhaps the archetypal cryptid, is pretty easy to imagine as a large, hairy, ape-like hominid, similar to other animals that we know and love. Well, I don't know, Baba Yaga, or the Boogeyman, is a bit more abstract and open to interpretation. Chupacabra? Cryptid. Genie? Not a cryptid. Unicorn? Eh, I'd say cryptid. We might also create a subdivision of cryptids known as fearsome critters, which are monsters of improbable proportions or behaviors that are commonly associated with logging camps. We'll get there when we get there, around episode 5, concerning the Hodag. Most of the places I stopped on my trip are cryptid museums, locations that catalog and curate material and testimonial evidence supporting the existence of creatures that have not been widely accepted to actually exist. The way that inquiries are made into the existence of cryptids brings to light a lot of the drawbacks, or benefits, depending on how you look at it, at the ways that the scientific method works to categorize the world around us. One final note about these first four episodes. Remember when I said I set out for my hometown, and that my hometown is near Chicago? Uh, it's not quite true. In fact, I went down the west coast when I was still in Oregon finishing school, before I drove back to the Midwest. I'll keep the episodes in chronological order, that is, the order I actually visited the locations, to reflect that, but I just wanted to lampshade the discrepancy and clarify any confusion. The order of episodes, just like the order of the visual archive at the Instagram, my underscore cryptid underscore vacation, is the actual order I took the trip, but the Oregon vortex, trees of mystery, Willow Creek China Flat, and Santa Cruz Mystery Spot locations didn't take place with me sleeping in the back of a van, but rather in a friend's car. Adding insult to injury is the fact that only one of these locations is an actual cryptid museum, and for reasons I'll speculate about later on, I wasn't able to record interviews at the first three places I stopped, meaning that these first three episodes have a bit of a different format than the rest. But without further ado, I'd like you to come with me on a bit of a vacation. Located at 42 degrees, 29 minutes, 40 seconds north, 123 degrees, 5 minutes west, is the Oregon Vortex. Or, to be more precise, the Oregon Vortex and world-famous house of mystery in Gold Hill, Oregon, just a few hours south of Portland. The Vortex is a classic example of a mystery spot attraction, an area that's claimed to have supernatural properties that manifest usually through some combination of electromagnetic compass disruption, unexplained sensory effects, like people growing taller and shorter, and general changes in gravity. RoadsideAmerica.com reports at least 35 similar mystery spot locations throughout the United States, from Alaska to Florida. And based on my experiences at two of them, I'd bet that pretty much every place claims to be the first. It was only a few hours down the I-5 from where I lived at school to get to the Vortex. It's located in beautiful southern Oregon, close to the Rogue River. 
there's a single sign on the road just says house of mystery four and a half miles we've gone down this way and there's a pasture with cows in it there is uh, an odof graveyard whatever that is and a really charming winery that kind of extends into the hills the ODOF, by the way, is just the Oregon Department of Forestry. It's a long and winding road to get to the House of Mystery. This thing from I-5 is off the map. There was one sign almost 10 minutes ago, and since then it's just been a road through a residential kind of wooded area. I'm starting to think the real mystery is how people find this place in the first place. Then again, I can't help but think that a uh, difficulty of discovery lends this thing, you know, the air it wants. The low brown buildings that make up the vortex, almost sinking into the woods, crept up on the car, and before we knew it, the front gates were there. We finally made it, and spoke with a woman at the front desk who revealed a few things to me. The person I'd scheduled an interview with wouldn't be in that day, much to my dismay. The tour would take about 45 minutes. One was starting soon, and if I hurried, I could just catch it. And that admission was $22. No refunds. It's at this point I should probably admit that this stop in the trip was equal parts business and pleasure. The Disney XD series Gravity Falls hit me at a pretty pivotal point in my life, and although I've since taken off the rose-tinted glasses, the show still holds a place in my heart. The Oregon Vortex and House of Mystery served as an inspiration for the creator Alex Hirsch's Mystery Shack in the series. And, sure enough, there was a small shrine of fan drawings and letters hanging in the window of the ticket booth. It wasn't here, but at another Oregon forest, nearly two and a half hours away, that a cement statue of the character Bill Cipher was first stashed in memoriam for the series finale, although it's probably worth mentioning that it's since been discovered by rabid fans and moved to another mystery spot location in California. But it was remarkable to see something so personal shared with so many people. I paid my respects and went on a tour of the Oregon Vortex and House of Mystery. The tour began with an activity that would have seemed out of place if the tour guide hadn't described it as being related to the eerie effects of the area. It began with a demonstration of a copper pipe and metal tube. At first, a magnetically neutral cube is provided by the tour guide and a visitor is chosen for a simple game. Holding the tube straight up and down in one hand, you've got to drop the cube down the tube and catch it before it falls to the ground with that same hand that dropped it. Perhaps my dexterity was lacking, but I wasn't able to. But in my defense, neither were any of the other volunteers. Then the neutral cube is switched out for another cube of rare earth metal, in this case, neodymium, and the visitor is invited to try again. This time, there's 
plenty of time to catch the falling cube because it floats down leisurely, vibrating magnetically, and not quite touching the sides of the copper tube. The meat and potatoes of any mystery spot tour are the illusions of height change. These take place in a few contexts. At the Oregon Vortex, volunteers are taken from the crowd and placed next to each other, or across the way from two posts, which are demonstrated, by way of level, to be straight across from each other. Walking back and forth, the volunteers appear to switch heights, even when viewed from different angles. Upon hearing that many of the exhibits are verified by the guide's level, I suspect some skeptic listeners might allege the level to be faulty, or specifically designed to give an inaccurate reading. While that's an understandable impulse, the guide made it very clear that anyone who had brought their own devices, whether levels, protractors, rulers, or compasses, could use them throughout the tour to verify what her level was saying. Of course, no one in the crowd happened to have a level on them, but given what I later learned at the Santa Cruz Mystery Spot, I doubt that a personal level would have shown anything different than the guides. It would be fiscally risky to have an attraction that's been open for nearly a century, disproved by any Joe College who showed up with a straight edge and ended the tour right then and there. After a bit of height changes, the tour leads to the actual mystery house. It's an ancient-looking log cabin, crumpled precariously against the hill so that it's nearly diagonal, with one side, seemingly, much lower than the other. The guide explained that this location had been an assay house for minerals in the area around 1890, owned by the Old Grey Eagle Mining Company. Remember, we are in Gold Hill, after all. A combination of gravitational anomalies making gold measurement difficult and a reduction in gold rush fever had led to the building falling into disrepair. At least, according to the tour guide's story. Given the similarities between this building and the one at the Santa Cruz mystery spot, though, I'm inclined to believe there was a bit more intentionality behind the design. A major theme of this section is changes in felt gravity. You can practically feel your center of balance changing while walking through the house. Standing so that you feel upright, you're actually standing at a ridiculously tilted angle, made even more obvious by a huge plumb line. That's the weight tied to a string that you might see surveyors use to determine whether something is plumb or straight up and down. This is where the most memorable pictures come from. If you look up the Oregon vortex, these kinds of shots are what you're most likely to see. The guide balanced a stiffened broom on the wonky floor and invited us to try for ourselves. Kids climbed on the walls, couples took pictures like Michael Jackson leaning, and we explored the mystery house for a while. The gravitational anomalies don't stop there. A plank of wood stuck out of the cabin window and rested near the hill beyond. After the guide used a level to confirm that the plank of wood was, in fact, level, a volunteer provided his water bottle, and we all watched, dumbstruck, as the half-full water bottle rolled slowly but surely uphill. There's a final group height illusion once you're out of the house. Our guide had volunteers line up from short to tall on a length of wood, while the rest of the group viewed them facing the house. Heights swapped again, with the backdrop of the distorted house, and, with a bit of ceremony, we were led back to the gift shop. Tor concluded. The 
Oregon Vortex has been open in more or less its original form since 1930. In the time it's been open, there's been quite a bit of speculation about how it works, or if it works at all. There are a lot of explanations for the phenomena present at the Oregon Vortex, some seemingly plausible and some less so. The big name around the Vortex is John Litster, born in Scotland in 1886, died in the US in 1959. He's the author of Notes and Data Relative to the Phenomena at the Area of the House of Mystery, and from what I can tell of the limited history known about the guy, founder of and tireless advocate for tourism too, the Oregon Vortex. With all due respect to the man and his grind set, and to the fine people running the Vortex now, it's not clear that any of the claims Litster made after putting the location together around 1930 are actually true. Like that indigenous inhabitants avoided the area, or that birds became magnetically scrambled when trying to fly through it. In what I have to assume was a publicity stunt, Litster wrote letters to Albert Einstein, tying the mass change phenomena at this tourist attraction to the recently minted theory of general relativity. Although, to be fair, the company Litster kept and the Fordians he likely interacted with might have had a more earnest purpose for this kind of communication. Fordian, by the way, refers to an admirer of Charles Hoy Fort, born 1874, died in 1932, both in the state of New York. Fort was a writer and paranormal investigator who popularized scientific skepticism as a basis for paranormal investigation in collections like uh, The Book of the Damned and Wild Talents. His contention was that just as religiosity rejects certain kinds of phenomena out of hand, so too does modern science, and that the truly skeptical adult should keep their mind open to phenomena that couldn't yet be scientifically explained as a matter of principle. This idea has proved remarkably long-lasting, and it pops up in the justification for many of the locations I visited on this trip. As for Litster's notes and data, I hold in my hands a revised copy from 1960 that I purchased at the Vortex, although the text refers to at present time as 1953, and it's probably a rework of a similar pamphlet published first in 1948. The tour of the Vortex provided two possible explanations for what all is going on, and Litster's notes and data has a bit more of an esoteric explanation. What you'll hear now is a summary of things that I remembered directly after being at the attraction. During the tour, there are two main theories provided as to what exactly is going on, what's causing the weirdness. The first is the theory of light distortion. That is, for some reason, the light in this area, whether it's filtering through the trees or if there's you know, uh, electromagnetism in the air that's distorting the light, um, kind of waved away, uh, the idea is that it's changing the light that you see. So things are odder at stranger angles and often appear to be just a little bit unnatural. The second idea is that of the theory of mass change where, for reasons unexplained, you get noticeable changes in the mass, the height, of objects in ways that are even felt without visual effects. Um, where you, you could have you know, someone who is blind will feel like they're gaining or losing height as they venture from area to area, even without the visual cues. Um, there were not any visually impaired people on the tour to 
vouch for that, but always worth a shot. Um, so those are the kind of two competing theories as to the strangeness going on at the mystery spot. Um, and the tour is kind of uh, ambivalent about it. It invites you to investigate for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Very much a, a pioneer, do-it-yourself, get-out-there-and-measure-sport kind of spirit. Blitzer's own book proposes the existence of terror lines, basically theoretical lines drawn into a chart of the area around which amplification and magnetic abnormality occur. Contact with the lines will incline people, shifting their center of mass and sensation to point them toward magnetic north. He thinks that while not necessarily unique, there exist notable intersections of north-south and east-west terror lines other places, like the Siskiyou Mountains or Monterey Bay, California, this magnetic interference is responsible for the effects of the vortex. The book, or pamphlet, is written in a passably scientific manner. Litzter was trained as an engineer, amongst many of the odd jobs he held, so he throws around a lot of impressive-sounding terminology, measuring in degrees, claiming to have done readings with Geiger counters, and a variety of other vaguely sciency things. I'll read from one of the pages so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. From the visual change in height, it was deduced that the photons within the vortex have a uniformly disturbed axis along the magnetic, north magnetic, south plane. But the atom is presumably not monodimensional in its dimensions, being theoretically the limits of the fields of its component electrons. However, since the atom has a diameter of 10 to the negative 8th centimeters against the 10 to the negative 12th centimeter diameter of its nucleus, citing Hyde H.D. Smith, Atomic Energy for Military Purposes, this gives the space necessary, 10,000 divided by 1, for contraction along any axis of the atom's field, the vortex field having an inclined axis which lies magnetic north, magnetic south, and creating a corresponding warp in the continuum will necessarily present a continuity of aberration of its attendant phenomena. Litzter even cites Einstein's evolution of physics in a passage delving into the influence of the vortex on the atomic structure of particles moving through the area. Much of the booklet, however, is simply pictures of people experiencing the vortex, leaning in odd directions or seemingly swapping places in comparison photos. Is this the work of an intrepid, if excitable researcher? A huckster using scientific language to bamboozle the casual reader? A piece of advertising cleverly disguised as a monograph? Or something else entirely? It's a fascinating little document, written by an interesting guy. If this whole thing sounds more than a little bit wonky, you're not alone. Some, like the ex-magician-turned-professional debunker James Randi, have a different explanation for what's going on at the Vortex, and, in fact, mystery spots more generally. His claim is simple. Forced perspective. Given the fact that the entire ground is, in fact, built on the side of a hill, all you need to do is conceal sight lines that could allow someone to properly orient themselves, something the House of Mystery does with slanted walls and fencing. Any leading or magnetic inclination is just gravity operating as it's supposed to, while our poor brains are tricked via optical illusion. Is this a satisfying explanation? Meh. It appears that the magic of the vortex is all about perspective, in more ways than one.
for as long as there have been mystery spots, there's been competition between them. Eleven years after the Vortex in Gold Hill opened, the mystery spot in Santa Cruz came into being, followed by Confusion Hill in Piercy, California. The final resting spot of that Bill Cipher statue, by the way. And now we've got around 35 in the United States, so someone must be turning a buck. A couple in my tour group were actually visiting from California, where one of them worked at the Santa Cruz mystery spot. They chatted up the tour guide after the tour, talked a little bit of shop, and gave each other some flack for the relative pros and cons of their respective establishments. I don't know the economic term for what I'm trying to say, but to me, mystery spots operate in an odd niche, where having a few lends them credibility, but an oversaturation hurts more than it helps. As it stands, though, the two spots I visited on my trip are the oldest in the country. Uh, although I'm sure that every spot has its own unsubstantiated ancient origin myth that stretches back far into prehistory. In the spirit of proper investigation, I had initially set up an interview with someone named Josh, who'd worked at the Vortex for a few years, and could presumably answer my questions about it. He was, unfortunately, not there the day I dropped by, and my schedule didn't permit me to swing by when he was there on the way back up. While I've entertained the thought of calling him post facto and trying to get some questions answered, I ultimately decided against it. In the spirit of a whirlwind trip, I don't know if reaching out to people nearly a month after to answer questions I have now in greater context is the right move. If I come by the Vortex again someday, I'll do my best to speak with someone who's there in earnest. But as it stands, as my first stop on a journey that didn't have much behind it to begin with, I think it's almost fitting to leave this investigation where it is. A lot more about what it's like to work at a mystery spot will be presented in the interview in the Santa Cruz Mystery Spot episode. The Oregon Vortex is a confounding place and well worth a stop, if you don't mind a bit of an entry fee. It's one of the first examples of truly roadside Americana, pioneered at a time before federal highways and honestly anticipating them. If you're expecting an attraction that'll bend over backwards to please you, go to Disneyland. But if you want to feel an old-fashioned magic, and you can suspend your disbelief a bit, I think you'll have a good time in Gold Hill. After the Oregon Vortex, we pack up and head to the least cryptid, and most beautiful, stop of the entire trip, and speak with the owner of the Klamath, California Trees of Mystery. Stay tuned for the next installment of My Cryptid Vacation. Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the My Cryptid Vacation is a podcast recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clovis. If you like what I do, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash clovisthefox. The outro music is a cover of 
On the Road Again, written and reported by Willie Nelson. Special thanks to the Oregon Vortex and House of Mystery for letting me scribble on my notebook during the tour. My Cryptid Vacation is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. <laughs>